0: Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity we have now to look to your word. God, I pray that you'd work mightily, miraculously in and through this time. God, that you would just speak to us plainly, clearly. That you'd give us eyes to see your your word, ears to hear your word. That you'd give us hearts that want to not only understand it, but also apply it. God, be with us and work in our hearts, God, to receive that which you are saying and to leave here changed by it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've been working our way through the book of Zechariah, and today, as I mentioned, we find ourselves in chapter 14. The book of Zechariah, as you will remember, was written to the people who had returned from Babylonian captivity to the land of Israel, and they were in Jerusalem rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, and as they did so, they were discouraged, And there were trials and troubles that they were facing as they were doing that. And they felt like there was a small remnant of people that existed that had been brought back. And the work that they were doing wasn't amounting to much. And God encouraged them and said, I'm doing something mighty and awesome. I have a plan. I am sovereign. I am in control. And I will indeed work this out. That I am building something greater than what you can see in this temple that you are building. And God comes to them with promise after promise after promise. And all those promises point to the future. They point to the gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Messiah who would rescue His people. But they also point to a future coming, a coming when the Messiah returns to reign and rule in righteousness. So with that in mind, we find ourselves in Zechariah chapter 14. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm gonna actually call a little bit of an audible here. It says on the screen 1 through 14, we're actually gonna read all the way through verse 21. Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the city will not be cut, the rest of the people, excuse me, will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. And that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives it will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with Him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at, at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem. Will dwell in security. Now, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one of them will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. Then it will come about that any who are, who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of Booth. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day, they will be inscribed on the bells of horses, Holy to the Lord and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all those who sacrifice will come, will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. We obviously have a lot of ground to cover. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the book of Zechariah, when he got to chapter 14, he said this, he said, here, in this chapter, I give up, for I'm not sure what the prophet is talking about. And as I read that, I thought, well, at least I am in good company. Because while this chapter is difficult, there is meaning to it, though, there is A great deal of meaning and a great deal to teach us regarding the promises of God and His plan for His people. That in this text, even in this text, as we struggle through it this morning, we will see clearly that God is sovereign, that He is in control, and that He has a plan for His people. When it seems like the world is spiraling out of control, when our lives are spiraling out of control, God is indeed in control. So there's no small debate about the interpretation of the prophecies shared in this chapter. Some claim that what is described here was fulfilled in the Maccabean period, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Others claim that this section deals primarily with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the church age that followed and continues uh, even in this day, today, the church age. And yet others claim that what is described here refers to events that have yet to take place In other words, these are future events coming at the end of the church age or the culmination of all time. So some would say that this chapter is all about the church. Because some would argue that all of the Old Testament references to Israel find their fulfillment in the church. And others would say that this chapter is all about Israel. And God's plan to call the Jewish people back to himself in in the last days. More specifically, when Christ returns to reign and rule on earth. Now, given these two options, and these two options alone, I would rather choose the latter, and say that this has to deal with God's return, Christ's return, and His, his uh, reclaiming of the Jewish people. The Jewish people coming to know Jesus Christ as the Messiah. I would rather take that because I think that we should, when possible, understand the Scripture in a literal fashion. And I don't think there's any reason to view all of this text as simply metaphorical as some would. However, I'm going to argue that it's most appropriate to see these prophecies fulfilled in part, or in small degree in the church age, they're they're fulfilled in small degree today, while they speak to a later and more ultimate fulfillment in the future. In other words, there's a partial fulfillment today, and there's a later, more ultimate fulfillment coming. I like the way John MacArthur explains this, or as as Dan referred to him in Sunday school, J-Mac. I like the way John MacArthur explains this. He refers to these earthly fulfillments as signposts along the way. They're signposts along the way to remind God's people of His promises. He says, I'm doing this thing and we see these what seem like partial fulfillments along the way where, God, where the people of God are reminded and they say, oh yes, God is doing this. He did promise this. So this text points forward specifically to the second coming of Christ. I want to say that. But it's my goal not to just talk about what God will do in the future, but instead to understand how these prophecies, how we are to understand them in light of what God has done and is doing through the gospel what God has done through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus. In other words, I'm far less concerned with this message being a study of all the details of the final days in world history. In fact, we will turn to the book of Revelation, but we're not going to spend the majority of our time talking about Revelation 19-21. through 21. Though I will say this, this text points largely to that section of Scripture. That if you're going to understand all these events and how they play out, you can't do so fully without understanding Revelation 19 and 21. And I think it's consistent to say that. Because Zechariah didn't have the book of Revelation. But Zechariah looked forward to the future and he didn't quite see as clearly as we do today. Because we have future prophecy, the book of Revelation, and we understand who the Messiah was more clearly. We understand the two comings of Christ, the first coming and the second coming. His two advents. But we're not going to spend a lot of time in the book of Revelation because this is not meant to be a full course on eschatology. It's not to underline or outline all the events of the future. I want to spend most of our time in the book of Zechariah and what Zechariah was communicating to these people who had returned from Babylonian captivity. So I'm far less concerned with this message being a study of all the details of the last days and far more concerned with seeing how we should respond the overall message of Zechariah 14. So without further delay, let's look at our text. As we work through this chapter, we're going to see three ideas, or three main points, emerge, and they'll serve as points in our sermon outline. The three points are communicated, by the way, in verses 1 through 11, and then again in 12 through 21. So he communicates these three points, and then starts over and communicates the three points again. And the first point in our sermon outline is, number one, the warning of judgment. The warning of judgment. Look at verses one through two with me. We're just going to go through these points quickly and kind of and run through the text, walk through the text as we look at each of these points. The warning of judgment. Verse one: Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from taken from you will be divided among you. He says literally, what's going to happen is there's a day coming when you, your spoil will be taken, your goods will be taken, and they're going to be divided in front of you. The enemies will come in, they're going to take your stuff, and they will divide them in front of your eyes. They'll divide all of your stuff. In verse 2 he says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. In other words, the the nations are going to rise up in rebellion against Jerusalem as instruments of God's divine wrath and judgment. This does not happen apart from God's plan. He says, I will gather the nations. I'm going to use them as my instrument. Though they have evil intent and purposes, I will use them in my plan. And he says, they're going to rise up in rebellion, and... They're going to be instruments of God's divine wrath and judgment. He says, but half of the people, a remnant of the people, will remain. Now, by the way, I think when we look at this, we have to see a literal fulfillment. I don't see this at all in the church age, where the spoil is taken from us, divided in front of us, that the nations are gathered against us. I see some of that, sure, that the nations are hostile to the church. When he goes on, he says the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. He's talking about when Christ returns, that he is going to call the Jewish people back to himself and that some of them, a remnant of them, will not be cut off from the city. So having seen, number one, the warning of judgment, verses one through two, next we see the way of escape in verses three through seven, the way of escape. Look at verses 3 through 7. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. The picture here is one of hand-to-hand combat. It's actually the Lord Himself fighting on the people's behalf. And surely we see this in part fulfilled, that the Lord does indeed fight on our behalf, that He is our defense. But the picture here is of the Lord Himself fighting the nations and defending his people. Verse 4, In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. He will literally return to earth, which is in front of Jerusalem on the, on the east, and the Mount of Olives will, will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move to the north and the other half toward the south. This is speaking specifically of the second coming of Christ. That as he ascended, that they... The, the picture was that he would return in the very same fashion. That he's going to return and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will be split. And he says, verse 5, you will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of, my, of the mountains will reach to his Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah and of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones will come. He's saying, You're going to flee. You're gonna flee by this valley that will be created. The mountain will be split in two, that so the people of Jerusalem will flee. They're gonna flee through this valley like they fled when there was this giant earthquake in the days of Uzziah. It says, And the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The term holy ones can refer to either people or angels. And we see that throughout scripture, throughout the Old Testament. You see both. However, in light of 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13, This passage actually seems to be speaking of the raptured church. Again, I don't want to spend a lot of time here focusing on this, but the raptured church, the church is taken up and who returns to earth with Christ. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13 says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we do also for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints, that we will return with Christ as He returns to reign and rule. And the picture here in Zechariah is of us returning with Him. And also, if you want to jot down Jude 14, you can see that there as well. In that day, verse 6, he says, In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. He says this day will be unique, and that the sun and the stars are going to dwindle, they're going to fade, and it won't be dark, but it won't be light either. Instead, what's pictured here is a sky that's gray and gloomy. It's a picture of judgment. If you watch a movie, you see that in, in times of judgment, it's not a bright, sunny day, it's not even necessarily nighttime, but instead there's this gloom, this shadow over the earth. And that's what he's picturing here. However, verse 7 says that when evening comes, just when you expect gloom to turn to complete darkness, there will be light. And this light is none other than the Lord himself. Isaiah 60 verses 19 and 20 says this, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor brightness will the moon give you light. Nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your morning will be over, that the Lord himself will be the light. And therefore there is no need for the sun, or the moon, or the stars any longer. You see it again in Revelation twenty-one, where he says, I saw this new city. I saw the, the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw no temple in the new city. For so the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For so the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And he goes on and he says, He says, and there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp or another, the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign Forever and ever. The picture that Zachariah is painting here is of a day of gloom, a day of darkness and judgment, but at the end of that darkness and judgment will be light. So there's a glimmer of hope. He's saying there is a way of escape. So the point of verses 3 through 7 is that God will provide a way of escape. God's going to provide a way of escape. He says, I will go and I will fight against those nations. He says, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle and you'll flee and there will be light that there is a way of escape that God will provide. So having seen the warning of judgment and the way of escape that God's going to provide a way, now let's consider the third point in our sermon outline. The third point is number three, the world made perfect. The world made perfect. Look at verses 8 and 11. He says, In that day, Living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. The picture here is of completeness. That there's going to be water in Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know how valuable water is. We talked about that not long ago, a couple of weeks ago. That water was something that Jerusalem desperately needed and still needs today. That there's not an abundance of water in the nation of Israel. He says, on that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them through the eastern sea, the other half through the western sea. There's going to be an abundance as far as the east to the west. And it will happen not just during times of, of rain, but instead it will happen in the summer, it will happen in the winter, it will be complete and thorough. Verse 9, and he says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the whole, the only one. And His name the only one. In other words, he will be the Lord over all the earth as he is now, but he will be recognized as such. Verse 10, And all the land will be changed into a plain, from Giba to Remon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site, from Benjamin's Gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the Tower of Hemel to the king's winepresses, And people will live in it. And there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. These would have been encouraging words to the people of Zechariah's day. 40,000 of them returned, just a small number of people that return. Nobody really wants to live in Jerusalem. They're they're being told to live in Jerusalem because they need to rebuild the city. They need to rebuild the temple. And some of them would have preferred, I'm sure, to return to their homes in the countryside. Instead, they need to rebuild this land. He says there's coming a day when all the other areas will be like a plain, but Jerusalem will be lifted up. It'll, it'll have its proper place. It'll remain on its site. And people will live in it. it will no longer be a curse. No longer will there be nations coming and attacking Jerusalem, but instead, Jerusalem will dwell in security. So having seen in verses 1-11, through 11, the warning of judgment, The way of escape, that God would provide a way out, that He would split the mountains and give them a means to escape the coming judgment, and then the world made perfect. That the Messiah would dwell with them and rule over His kingdom and make things right. That He would be the one who would bring the living waters to them. Having seen those three things, now let's look at verses 12 through 21 and see these same points restated. The first point, again, is the warning of judgment. Look at verses 12 through 15. He says, Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day, great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. This is a horrific picture, folks. So horrific will the situation be, people will panic, what it says. There will be a great panic, and people will start attacking one another. That's what happens when hard times come, when horrible times come, people start turning on each other. He says this in verse 14, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver garments in great abundance. In other words, all of Judah will defend Jerusalem. Judah will be united to defend Jerusalem. And all the nations attack and devour each other. And while that's happening, even from within, the nations devouring each other, God's people will be united. And the wealth of the nations will be given to them. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, verse 15, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in this camp. Again, this is a broad, seeking judgment that will happen. So having seen the warning of judgment, now let's, consider, let's return to our second point, the way of escape. Look at verses 16 through 19. And this is really where I want to spend a lot of time and focus. The way of escape. Look at verses 16 through 19. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up, to, does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of Booths. Now, obviously, in order to understand this section, you must understand what the feast of Booths is and why it's significant. It's also referred to as the feast of Tabernacles. And it was a celebration meant to remind the people, God's people, of his provision in delivering them out of Egypt. In other words, it was meant to remind them of the time that God provided a way of escape out of Egypt and cared for them in the wilderness. The time when they dwelled, when they lived in tents, when God himself lived in a tent. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to go and build these tents. And I want you to build these tents so that you remember your time in the wilderness when I rescued you. We read about this in Leviticus 29, 39-43. It says this, On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. You'll remember God's provision. You bring in God's provision. And you're going to celebrate for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus con- celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual s- statute throughout your generations and you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations May know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, I want you to live in these tents. I want you to live in these temporary dwellings so that you remember that I carried you through the wilderness and I provided for you, giving you a, a way of escape from Egypt. Later on, the Jews, they added the tradition where the priest would Draw water from the pool of Siloam, and they pour it into a basin near the altar in the temple. And they did so to remind God's people of the provision of water that was given them as they wandered in the desert. So the point is that the feast of Booths was to celebrate God providing a way of escape, delivering His people from bondage in Egypt. Dwelling or tabernacling is literally the word. Dwelling with them and providing for them in the desert and bringing them home to the promised land. That's what this, this feast was all about. It was God's deliverance, God's way of escape. And all of that points forward to the Gospel. From the Gospel, we see that God delivers us from the bondage of sin. That He dwells with us through His Holy Spirit. That He tabernacles with us. And that He has promised to carry us safely home to heaven. That all of that is a picture of what God is doing in the Gospel, in the church age and in the Gospel. Thus it should not be lost on us that when the Feast of Booths is referenced in John seven thirty-seven and 38, we read this. It says, now on the last day, the day of the great feast, this is the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is after the priest poured out the water, Jesus that on that day, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You see, Jesus is God's provision. He is our way of escape. He is the one who frees us from the bondage of sin. He cares for us and protects us while we dwell in this earthly tent. And he's the one who will give us final rest in our heaven and home. So having seen the warning of judgment, the way of escape, we now turn back to the third point in our outline, the world made perfect. Look at verses 20-21 as we finish up our text. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. So there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. This is a picture of all things being made right. There's no more se- there's no more separation between the secular and the sacred. There's no bowls that are used just for worship, that instead everything can be used for worship. So there's no more corruption. We live in a world where the the chief command of us as believers is 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And this is played out here in this verse, where everything that is done, eating, drinking, everything is done for the glory of God. It's realized here in this picture that even the bowls that are used in the the, uh, temple can be used for cooking. Because cooking can be something that is holy to the Lord. Done for His glory. There's no corruption in it. And when he says, And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord, he's saying there's no longer any sin. There's no longer any corruption. That instead, it will be purified and made perfect. You see a picture of this in Revelation 21 when this actually gets fulfilled. This picture in 20 and 21, you see it being fulfilled in Revelation 21. When we read this, it's fully realized then. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth are cast away, and there's no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Right, for these things are faithful and true. Then He said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water, of life without cost, He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. You see, this is a picture of the world being made right. Of that which is corrupt being cleansed. So by way of review, we have this warning of judgment in Zechariah 14. We have the way of escape. God's provision that God's going to provide a way of escape for his people and we have the world made perfect. So God is going to cleanse and purify the world. And all that exists will be set apart for service to Him. So this is ultimately a reversal of the fall of what is pictured here. So Zechariah points forward to these things. And he does so without a lot of Clarity. there's a reason this text is hard to understand because Zechariah is just pointing forward to him. And his point is not to go through all of the details of how exactly this will play out. We get further details from other scriptural texts and further details from the book of Revelation. But that's not Zechariah's point. Instead, his point is to give the people hope. To show that there is coming a day of judgment. But there is also a way of escape. Is a way of escape, and that God ultimately will rescue His people, that He will redeem and rescue His people, those who call on His name and who are in right relationship with Him, those who look to His provision for the way of escape. So the question is, how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? Well, we need to remember the overall message of Zechariah. I don't want to end this book without thinking about the fact that these people were in a difficult spot. They were unsure of their future. They didn't know what was going to happen. And they were doing work, the work of the ministry But God was saying, don't just do the work with your hands, but instead I want your heart. And they were concerned about being carried off into captivity again. They were concerned about future judgment. The last thing they wanted was to return to Babylon. The last thing they wanted was more judgment. And God says, I have a plan for you in all of this. Trials will come, difficult times will come, but I'm going to carry you through this. And I'm going to orchestrate my plan for my glory and for your good. And in the same way, we should remember that very same thing. We should remember, as they remembered, they look forward to the first coming of Christ, so also we look forward to the second coming of Christ. That He is going to return, that He's sovereign over all that we go through, and that the trials of this life are light and momentary, compared to eternity. That's the overall message of Zechariah, but as we look at 14 in particular, how do we apply this? Well, number one, we should heed the warnings of judgment. We should heed the warnings of judgment that are given here. If you look at uh, the book of Acts, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, we actually see this communicated Paul, who's preaching at the, uh, in the midst of the Europhagus says this. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We should heed this warning of judgment. That's what Paul said. He pointed back to the Old Testament and said, there's coming a day of judgment Therefore, you should repent, turn away from your sin. In other words, there is hope in spite of your past. And I don't know. Some of us here today are, I'm sure, followers of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here, because I'm a follower of Christ. I have heeded that warning of judgment. I've turned away from my sin, and I'm still in the process of continuing to turn away from my sin. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that there is hope in spite of your past regardless of what you have done. The scripture says that God is now overlooking the times of ignorance and is calling all men everywhere to repent, to turn away from rejection of Jesus and to trust Him, the good shepherd, as Zechariah tells us. To heed the warning of judgment. And number two, we should look to God for the way of escape. God is the one who provides the way of escape. You know, uh, Martin Luther was asked by one of his parishioners, why do you present the gospel to us week after week, after week, after week? Why every week do you continue to present the gospel to us? And he said, "Because you forget every week." That is my goal, really, is to present the gospel of Christ. There's hope in the gospel. We can stand up here, I can stand up here and I can talk, a, I can give some the, some theology lesson. We can talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. We can try to talk about things that don't really at the end of the day, matter, or that matter little compared to the gospel, if we don't get the gospel right, folks, then we've severely gone astray. So We need to look to God for the way of escape. That's the message of the gospel. That this has been realized in the gospel, this way of escape. And that it will ultimately be realized when He returns. That we celebrate His provision. The Lord Jesus Christ who came to suffer and die for our sins, who was raised on the third day, that is our provision. The One who said, I am the One who can give you living water. Drink from Me. And the One who says, I'm coming again to rescue you once and for all. So just as we have hope regardless of our past, in this we have hope for the present. And the Gospel gives us hope for the present. It helps us to realize that God is in control and that He does indeed, even in this day, Divide the mountains, so to speak, and give us a way of escape. The scripture says that no trial is overtaking you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. Right? He's not going to let you. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you're able. But He's going to provide a way of escape. And He's not going to let you bear. But he's not going to give you a burden that you can't. That's beyond what you can handle through Him. Now, don't misunderstand me. God will give you burdens that you can't handle on your own. The point is that He's going to enable you to to walk through that valley. He's going to divide the mountains and allow you to walk through that, He will provide you with a way of escape. This is hope for the the present. But it's also hope for the future. That as we go through this life, the trials are long and hard. It's hard to imagine Peter saying they're light and momentary, when in our eyes, they're long and hard. The The only reason that they're light and momentary, as we learned last week, is because in light of eternity, they're just brief. In light of eternity, they weigh nothing that instead God will not only give us a way of escape in this life, but ultimately that will be realized in the life to come. So that points us to a third point of application. And that is look forward to the day when all things are made new. Have a hope that's set on the future, that's set on heaven. Don't just hope in the future, but also hope in today. But make sure that your minds are set on heaven. Make sure that you have a heavenly perspective. You know the saying is that Somebody can have such a heavenly perspective that they're no earthly good. I realize that some people may indeed be able to do that, but I have yet to meet anyone who is ever that way. That's what John Piper said. He said, I guess it's possible, but I've never met anyone who is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Instead, the opposite is true. We should look forward to to the day when God will make all things new that the burdens of this life will be done away with that ultimately, as God gives us a way of escape to cleanse us, that we look forward to the day when He will once and for all purify us, so remove all sin, so wipe away every tear, and that we will spend eternity with Him in heaven. This is hope for the future, folks. So as we live out our lives, I want you to realize that there's hope in the Gospel. So the book of Zechariah points forward to the coming of Jesus and says there's hope. There's great hope. Hope for what God is going to do in your present situation and hope for what God's going to do in the future. And the message to God's people then really isn't that different than the message to us. There's hope for today and there's even greater hope for tomorrow. So look to Jesus. Look to Him as the way of escape celebrate the Feast of Booths, so to speak, the Feast of Tabernacles while we dwell in this earthly tent, we look forward to the day when He delivers us to the promised land. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. God, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not looked to Your provision, the provision of the Gospel, the provision of Your Son, Jesus, the One who suffered and died in our place, the One who was raised from the dead, God, that today would be the day that they would look to Jesus as their Savior. God, I pray for the rest of us, for those of us who call upon Your name, who have trusted in Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, God, that we would not forget the mighty power of the Gospel. God, that just as You spoke to a people and gave them hope some 2,500 years ago as they were seeking to honor You, seeking to rebuild the temple, seeking to sort through the trials of life, God, that You would give us hope as well. God, that we would look forward to Your Son's return, that we would have great hope in that. But God, we would also realize that there is hope for today, that there is power in the Gospel of Christ, And God, that you have provided a way of escape today and an ultimate and final way of escape in the future. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.